Well, hey, thank you so much for tuning into today's episode of The Stone Table. My name is Travis, and I'm the teaching pastor at Baylife Church. And I'm Mickey, and I'm a worship coordinator here at Baylife. And we are back with another episode. Yes, we are. But before we get into our episode today, I just wanted to let our listeners know that a couple of weeks ago, Travis <laughs> celebrated his 30th birthday. I, I did. That's so true. I wanted you, before we jump into this awesome interview, that mm-hmm. if you could just take a second and just let our listeners know what it's like to be 30. What is it like, Travis? Overwhelming. <laughs> it, is, it is overwhelming to exit one decade and enter a new one. <laughs> well, it is yeah. when you are in grad school. Yeah, which is ex- exactly where I am right so now. So all two weeks of Travis being 30, because you turned 30 about two weeks ago. Right, or yeah, yeah. Like a week and a half ago. A week and a half. Um, The rest of the birthday that you have spent, or time being 30, you have just spent in books and writing papers. Yeah, (laughs) I've I've spent this entire time neck deep in early high Christology, Mm. and so... Larry Hurtado and all that. <laughs> yeah. I'm, and, it's, and default, it's amazing that you know that name. Well, yeah. of course, because by default, I get to basically study everything Travis does. Right. It's kind of all I talk about. It's y- true. You're swamped with Richard Bauckham and Larry <laughs> Hurtado. And yeah, early high Christology is no joke, you guys. Um, and it's pretty fun for me because his classes were online this past semester. And so I got to sit in on some of the online lectures and, mm-hmm. and we get to talk through all the cool stuff that Travis is learning. So it's been fun for me. I'm, I'm glad it's been fun for yeah. you because I'm completely at my wits end and <laughs> I'm, I'm glad I haven't exhausted you no. ran, rambling and ranting about New Testament scholarship. No, so. but at the same time, I'm not the one who is writing 12 page papers. Yeah, that you might are. be what has me at the end of myself. Yeah. yeah. So you guys, our listeners can be praying for Travis as he uh, <laughs> finishes strong this week Yeah, and sure. all his final papers. But in the middle of all this, we were able to have a really exciting conversation with Gavin Ortland. Yes. And and I feel like I say this before every episode that I'm super excited about it. Mm-hmm. And it's true. I'm never lying. I'm always excited about it. But this one in particular, I have been strongly tempted to release early because I was so excited about Man, it. Man, it's true. Our conversation with Gavin was so good. It was just so uh, just heartening and it was just a really sweet conversation to talk with someone who you can tell our listeners a little bit more about. Yeah. So if you're not familiar with Gavin, he did his PhD at Fuller Theological Seminary and he currently serves as the senior pastor of First Baptist Church in Ojai, California. Mm -hmm. And Gavin has this really interesting journey where he grew up primarily in Presbyterian contexts and eventually became a convictional Baptist. Mm-hmm. Uh, he writes for the Gospel Coalition. He's written a number of books. One of them we'll be discussing on the show. It's his book, Finding the Right Hills to Die On. And in this book, Gavin kind of makes the case for learning to, to choose our battles wisely when it comes to theology, which is not to say that all theology isn't important, but I think what he's trying to advocate for is us recognizing we need to make the biggest deal about the things that are of the most importance. Sure. And and he explains it in such a very eloquent way in which he he talks about this theory of theological triage in which we kind of learn how to prioritize what are first rank doctrinal issues and what are second rank and what are some third ranks and just having wisdom and differentiating 
the the different levels that there are when we talk about theology. Yeah. So if, if you have friends who are in a different denomination than you, or maybe even friends that you go to church with, but you don't see eye to eye on on certain issues, this episode is going to be super helpful for you yes. as you think about what it looks like to have gracious conversations. I know there were numerous times during the interview where I kind of wanted to just stand up and cheer and yell amen, <laughs> but that wouldn't have been proper etiquette. And so right, right. we did so afterwards when we stopped we did. recording. Yeah. Yes, we jumped up and down and we're so excited that we just got just the, the wonderful opportunity to sit down with someone who has so graciously and thoughtfully laid this out for those of us who want to just engage with people who think differently than us. Absolutely. So we are very, very excited about this conversation and we have really found it helpful we have found his book super helpful. Mm, So we also recommend this book to you uh, as a listener to check out on your own too. Yeah. So with that being said, we can't wait to jump into today's conversation with Gavin Ortland around the topic of finding the right hills to die on. So for Baylife Church, I'm Travis. And I'm Mickey. And this is The Stone Table. Gavin, thank you so much for joining us on the Stone Table. We are so excited to have you, and we are so thankful that you've uh, taken the time to meet with us. We are so excited to talk to you about your book that came out this year, right? In 2020? Last month, I believe. Yeah. It is called Finding the Right Hills to Die On. So thank you for joining us today. Hey, great to be with you guys. And first of all, congratulations. You and your wife just had a baby very recently, right? Thank you so much. <laughs> and we had a little baby girl named Aww. Miriam Rebecca uh, three weeks and two days ago. Aww. So wow. So with joy. Awesome. I'm I'm astounded that you've you've had enough sleep yeah. <laughs> to be able to do this interview. I, I'm impressed. <laughs> if I fall asleep, it'll be We'll blame it on that. Yeah, okay. yeah, we'll know why. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, thank you so much. And so you are currently pastoring in California. And so one of the things that we like to ask our uh, our guests who are you getting to know is uh, some very important questions, whether mm-hmm. or not they're a cat or dog person, which is really important. But since you mm-hmm. have been, you are well-traveled, you've been living in many parts of the U.S. and right now you are currently in California. So as a committed Californian, we want to know when we go visit, because we actually had a trip planned pre-pandemic. Pre-pandemic, yeah. Where should we visit? Where in California are, in your own opinion, are the top top places to go? Okay, that's a great question. Yeah, we have really developed a love for California, both my wife and I. And it's, it's interesting because neither of us are from here. But we both had always had a longing to live on the West Coast. And we love the culture, the diversity. We love the ocean. I would say, I mean, it's so such a big state. It, there's so much that can be seen. It really depends on if you're in Southern California or Northern California. Right. Um, if you're close enough to make it to Yosemite, Ooh, I okay. actually have never been to Yosemite, but we have a, a trip planned in uh, about two months and we're going to go with, with all the kids and, and see it. And from what I hear, it's just uh, breathtakingly beautiful. So that's definitely worth seeing. I think our favorite place is the beach. And so mm. anywhere along the, the southern strip of California, we love mm-hmm. northern San Diego, that area of the beaches okay. there are, yeah. are just beautiful. And then anywhere along Orange County, we'd like to go as well. So I think uh, if if you're close enough to go to the beach, that's that's definitely another uh, another hot spot. My favorite beach would be La Jolla Beach, okay. just uh, north north of San Diego. So those are a couple ideas. Okay, cool. cool. Are, are there any restaurants that you would recommend specifically in in the town that you're in? 
it, should we end up there? Also, I should ask, how do you pronounce the name of the town that you're in? <laughs> yes, it's uh, it's Ojai. 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 Okay. It's spelled O J A I. So mm-hmm. don't say Ojai. 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 Yeah. <laughs> gotcha. You run out of town by the locals <laughs> if you do that. Um, yeah, let me think here. Um, if you're in, I mean, Southern California in general, uh, In and Out is like a a, a burger and fries Ooh, place yes. that's very famous, and you know, lots of people talk about whenever you're in California, you need to try In and Out, and it mm-hmm. is really good, kind mm-hmm. of cheap. It's not too expensive. Um, and then Ojai is such a unique town. There's actually no fast food or chain restaurants of any kind. Wow! So it's wow. all kind of unique stuff. Cool. So. Um, there's a number of good places that uh, that people could try here. Gosh, let me think about that. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. What, what the top one would be right now? Yeah. Um, cool. Well, hey, if it, if it comes to you, uh, we'll revisit it mid conversation. Yeah. There yes. We we actually had a like I mentioned we we had a trip planned to California a couple months ago for a friend's wedding. Right. But then this whole pandemic happened and, and everything got canceled, and so we didn't get a chance to go. So whenever the world reopens, we are very much looking forward to being in California. Yeah. Absolutely. So Gavin, you've written this book, Finding the Right Hills to Die On, and I'll be honest, it it showed up for me in my Amazon recommended reading list, <laughs> it, you know, because there's an algorithm that tells you, you read books like this. And I've just felt like it was it was a godsend in so many ways. I feel like you've articulated a lot of, of what I've been trying to communicate over the last couple of years, and, and even some some thoughts that, that I was leaning towards, but I couldn't put my own finger on how to say it. But it seems like this book in particular is really inspired by your personal journey of changing your mind on maybe some second tier doctrines and, and moving from one tribe to another over the course of studying theology and going to seminary and kind of landing where you are now. So could you maybe just talk a little bit about your story and, and the process that led up to writing a book like this? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think one of the biggest changes for me was on the topic of baptism. Mm-hmm. Uh, I grew up going to mainly Presbyterian churches. And then uh, when I, and I never actually thought about that doctrine at all when I was growing up and it wasn't really an, an important thing for me at an emotional level in any way. But um, my senior year of college, I felt a call to ministry and was about to start seminary and I knew that that I'd always always kind of had doubts about, you know, why do we baptize babies? Is there a biblical mm-hmm. reason for infant baptism? I knew a little bit about that discussion, but I didn't know a lot. And so I just dove into that one because I knew this will affect where I could be ordained. Right. right. Um, it, it has a, a direct practical consequence on me as a minister. Mm-hmm. And so that final semester of college and then the first year of seminary, I did a deep dive on that issue. And I ended up coming out on to the credo Baptist side, which mm-hmm. is just the view of Baptist churches, for example, that those who profess faith in Christ should be baptized. Right. Um, so that was the first of several issues like that that have just alerted me to how painful and challenging doctrinal changes can be. Yeah, right. um, That issue was not an emotional issue for me. It wasn't as though I was upset with the Baptists on the other side or something like that. It just circumstantially fell out that my, as I thought about it for myself, my convictions solidified in this particular way. And then there were practical consequences to that. To be honest, I've felt denominationally lonely ever since leaving the 
Presbyterian Church in America, the PCA, hmm. because I loved that denomination. Um, and I felt like I fit in there in various ways other than that doctrine. And so I've uh, just felt the sadness of the loss of, of, of some ministry collaboration opportunities. And then there have been a few other issues um, that I've wrestled with in a similar way. One is creation, mm-hmm. how we understand yeah. creation. Uh, uh, another few would be kind of um, the details leading up to the second coming of Christ, so end times. Mm-hmm. And those also have alerted me, and I know we'll talk all about this, but the big picture would just be the heart behind this book and what has developed as a value for me is that when we have doctrinal disagreements, to talk about them and navigate in relation to them in such a way that there's minimal damage for the kingdom of God. Yeah. And that we do so with love. I mean, obviously, sometimes we will divide over things. Right. And if we're thoughtful, we're going to disagree with other views that people have. But hopefully we can do that with love and in a way that still somehow reflects our unity because mm. our unity in Christ is so important. So that's kind of the driving heart for me on this topic. So there's a, a footnote in the book where, where you say that if there are any non-strict credo-baptist, amillennialist, old-earth creationist, partial preterists, which are kind of all these big doctrinal issues that you've been thinking through, uh, that you'd love to get a beverage with them. And I just like to confess that I am all of those things. And so, <laughs> all right. uh, yeah. So when we're in California, I don't drink, not cause I'm not allowed to, but I, I just don't. So maybe we can get a coffee when I'm in California. Yeah. Okay. Cause, uh, sounds, sounds great. I would love that. And it's so funny how many emails I've gotten from people saying, Oh really? <laughs> <laughs> we need to get a beverage because, you know, because the food was kind of a joke. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, That's I, great to hear that we're similar in those ways though. Yeah. May our, may our tribe increase, I guess. Right. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes, uh, your heart for this book is so evident throughout the pages, and so it's just one of the reasons why we were so drawn to it. So as you kind of begin to uh, describe how Christians approach some of these doctrines, you kind of um, explain that there are two, essentially two camps, and there are about two yeah, two mistakes that people make when they're approaching these things. So you talk about doctrinal sectarianism, versus doctrinal minimalism. So can you talk about what those are and what are some of the symptoms and dangers of either camp? Okay. Yes. Yeah, so this is um, at the start of the book. What is driving my thinking is this recognition that sometimes we tend toward the extremes. Right. And I think we see this sense of polarization elsewhere in our culture as, as well. And obviously the hope would be as followers of Jesus that where there's this polarization that is unhealthy and we're um, losing the ability to have respectful disagreement and courteous disagreement that Christians would be an alternative voice to that. And we'd show here's how we can model uh, civility and respect and thoughtfulness in the way we engage with someone of a different persuasion. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, sometimes it seems as though the church is just as polarized. And Mm -hmm. um, sometimes we tend toward these extremes the, the doctrinal minimalist extreme, this would be the one who really wants to minimize doctrines and let, sometimes it will want to minimize all doctrines. Sometimes it will say, mm-hmm. well, let's just focus on the gospel and anything else we just won't talk about very much. Right. Um, and one of the challenges with that is that itself is a sort of doctrinal mentality. Mm-hmm. It's not as though that's a less specific or less chosen way of navigating theologically. It, it just may not be so overt. 
Um, the other extreme would be kind of the fundamentalist tendency to fight, to die on every hill, to fight over every doctrine. And one of the things I propose in the book is that most of us, knowing my own heart, I think this is true for me and probably for everyone, we are tempted at different times towards different errors. And sometimes we have an overall leaning. You know, yeah. we know ourselves and we know we lean towards the minimalist side or we lean towards the sectarian side. And so the goal is that we find the, the healthy balance where we're not minimizing truth, but we're also not minimizing love and unity. And we're trying to right. hold both of those things together as much as we can. And that's complicated and difficult, but we want to make that effort. And that's kind of what theological triage, which is the idea of the book, is all about helping us try to do that. Yeah, yeah it, it reminds me of, I don't know if this is sort of apocryphal or if Luther actually said it, but he talks about the drunk man who keeps falling off the horse on the other side, where he, he slides off one side of the horse and he tries to get back on and yeah. he falls off on the other side of the <laughs> horse. And so it almost seems like maybe some of this is rooted in our upbringing, where sure, if, if yeah. you grew up in a very sort of um, loose church that didn't have a lot of doctrinal commitments, I know for my generation this was true. A lot of people found the whole young, restless, and reformed thing and and every hill became a hill to die on because in growing up there were no hills to die on mm -hmm. uh, whereas i think there's a lot of people that maybe come out of that movement and are so tired of the battles that they don't want to fight about anything anymore and so we keep mm -hmm. sort of I, I wonder how much of it is a reaction to our experiences in the past and seeing the worst of one side and thinking the other side will be better when in reality we want to be on the horse right and not, right not off of the horse in some way yeah, that, I think that makes so much sense. I've thought similarly that sometimes wondering how much our experiences go into whatever our leanings might be. And another factor might be our personality. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because some of it's us, true. you know, if we think on a Myers-Briggs, the old personality indicator, we've got our feelers and our thinkers, Right. you know, and, and some of us are just more uh, drawn to uh, engaging at a, a cognitive level. Others of us really value harmony. And, but the experiences, I think that's so true. I think Many times we sort of everyone has some kind of way of prioritizing doctrines, but maybe we've not even thought it through. It's just been something we developed as a consequence of whatever experiences we've gone through. Yeah. And unfortunately, sometimes that does lead us to the extremes. Yeah. Your, your solution that, that you mentioned a little bit earlier is uh, theological triage. And, and I think this is a really helpful concept. I, I know Al Mohler kind of originated it a, a number of years ago, but I think you've developed it in some really helpful ways. So yeah. for people who aren't familiar with that, and maybe this podcast is the first time they've heard the term, can you kind of unpack what that triage is and how we apply it? Absolutely. Yeah. The idea of theological triage, I know that term can seem really technical or something like that, but it actually is a very simple idea. Mm -hmm. um, so triage in the medical context is a system of prioritization. It's a medic on a battlefield saying, okay, there's some uh, wounds that we have to treat right away. There's some wounds that we, that are the second rank things we can wait on. Then there's some things that really aren't in, and you have a system like that of ranking different injuries. Um, and it's so important because if you don't treat the most urgent needs first, then people can die. You right. Know? Right. And so this is a metaphor that we're using for theology, and we're suggesting that um, different doctrines have different levels of importance. And even in the New Testament, you see times where Paul, like in the book of Galatians, mm -hmm. very feisty. Yeah, very it's very feisty. intense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He's willing to, to die on a hill. He's willing to take yeah. a stand. 
And then you have other passages like Romans 14 or 1 Corinthians 8, where he's calling for patience and he's calling for forbearance. And he's saying, accept each other. You know, uh, you need to um, don't not sit in judgment upon one another. So uh, it looks as though it is the case that some doctrines are more important than others. And so triage is just a, a way of trying to prioritize them and put them into different buckets. Mm-hmm. In this book, I've kind of laid out three different major buckets, and that's not the only way it could be done, but it's one way to one way we can think about it. Yeah. yeah, I'm so glad that you you unpack this so well in your book and make it really easy to understand. But I think sometimes at first it can be kind of hard for someone to determine what is first tier, second tier, third tier. So um, I know, yeah. Travis, you've had an experience where Travis actually teaches some of our foundations classes where right. you, you teach church history. Mm-hmm. Um, systematic theology. Yeah. In which you've, you've asked in the beginning of the class, what do people consider heresy? For example. Yeah. So the, the first week at like, because so much of church history is, is orthodoxy being challenged and then being clarified over and over again. Um, and so, and so I just ask at the beginning, what do you think heresy is? Mm -hmm. And, and then I define heresy and then we kind of walk through it. Um, but I remember one class in particular, I asked that question, what do you think is heresy? And uh, infant baptism was listed as heresy, <laughs> and um, not having a Baptist form of church government was listed as heresy. Okay. Um, and then also, uh, possibly, uh, speaking in tongues was listed as heresy, but the class wasn't quite sure about that. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think it just shows, like, what, what people were trying to grasp at is that all of these things are important, and we as Christians need to take them seriously, but it, it does show that it's hard sometimes for people to figure out what fits in that first box, what is of the utmost importance. So how might you help somebody think that through? If, if they're wondering what are the most important things, how do they, how do they begin to sift that? Okay. Well, uh, for these first three ranks, I define the first rank as those doctrines that are essential to the gospel. So that if they are lost or denied, the gospel itself is lost. Mm-hmm. And so um, issues, there's lots of issues that are very important, but they wouldn't fall into that category. Um, the second rank doctrines, by the way, just mentioned this for people who might be curious, uh, would be doctrines that we might divide over at the level of church or denomination, mm-hmm. but they don't make you a Christian or a heretic. Right. right. Um, so some of the ones we've mentioned, like baptism, might mm-hmm. fall into that category. And the third rank doctrines would be things that they still matter, they're still important, they're still something we should be pursuing the truth about, but they really don't even need to divide us. You could sure. have two people on staff at a church mm-hmm. and they're serving together and they just have a different view on that. And then sometimes we speak of fourth rank doctrines as things that are just utterly irrelevant. Right, right. <laughs> would, would that be like we color gotta, of the carpet or that's maybe 10th rank <laughs> doctrine? Design. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Fourth or or were or more down yeah. the line. Yeah. yeah, it's funny. One time I did a Google search for, and I, the first words I typed in were "church split." And you know how sometimes it'll come up with suggestions yes. for what to write next yeah. in, the, in the lighter font. And the 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 second suggestion was color of carpet. <laughs> no thought, way. Oh no. I I feel <laughs> like that's been what, an illustration in so many sermons. I would yeah. love to know what church prompted the uh, the description. Yeah, yeah. yeah. man. Yeah. Exactly. Well, certainly people are thinking about that. And I mean, it kind of goes to the point here of how easy it is to elevate things that aren't that important, or maybe that are important, but we elevate them too much. Sure. Yeah. So the first rank doctrines, I, I think of these things as 
And this here we're into the question of how do we rank doctrines? Mm -hmm. And that's a tough question. In the book, I catalog a couple of different lists of criteria, and then I condense them down into four basic questions that are a good starting point. We may want to ask other questions also, but it's a good starting point. And those would be how clearly is the doctrine taught in the Bible? Mm -hmm. um, how important is the doctrine to the gospel? Um, how practically relevant is it for the church? And what have other Christians thought about it throughout history? And those are just four questions that start to get us to think about something. Um, so I see in the first rank category things like the Trinity, that God is the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, one being in three persons, mm -hmm. as opposed to the kind of God that's in, envisioned by other religions. Uh, that's, right. you know, either just one person, a unipersonal God, or uh, a non, an impersonal deity right. or something like that. That's at the heart of our faith because it's the very one to whom we pray and worship. We were praying to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Right. Or things like the deity of Christ, right. um, which really are foundational to, to uh, what the gospel message is, his substitutionary atonement, his resurrection. Mm -hmm. um, and there's perhaps other things that we could list in the book. I list two examples of first-ranked doctrines. One is the virgin birth. Mm -hmm. Jesus was born of a virgin. And the other is um, justification, justification by faith. Yeah. And there I'm drawing a lot from Galatians. Mm. Um, so those would be, that's kind of what we're, ta we're talking about, kind of apostles, creed, basic Christianity. Right. This is what puts you within the fold of the people of God. Right. And you can make a lot of other mistakes once you're in there, but this is sort of the basic. Yeah. The boundaries. Uh, I know whenever I've interacted with people who are struggling with their faith and wrestling with doubt, um, that's... That's kind of the stuff that I ask first. And, and yeah. you mentioned the Apostles' Creed, and, and I know you've got an interest in church history and, and theological retrieval, and I think there's some overlap there uh, with what we're mm -hmm. talking about and that practice. But I normally ask somebody, you know, lay out the Apostles' Creed and say, Do you, are you rejecting any of this? Because if you're rejecting any of this, then these are the things we need to talk about first. If you have questions about something like the age of the earth or even something that is important, like the inerrancy of scripture, as opposed right. to the infallibility of scripture, you know, we'll address that. But if you're rejecting this central stuff here, the virgin birth, the deity of Christ, the resurrection, the second coming, uh, that's what we want to go after first. Right. Those are the bounds within. The, those are the fences around the property right. of Christianity, if you will. That's right. That's really helpful. And in the book, I encourage different mentalities for these different doctrines. So the first rank doctrines, I encourage uh, a mentality of courage and conviction. Yes. And then in the second rank doctrines, I encourage wisdom and balance. And in the third rank doctrines, I encourage circumspection and restraint. Mm. So this is kind of hold back here. You yeah. Know? yeah. That's the idea is there's a time to really, you know, dig in and say, no, this matters. And there's also time to be more open handed and be more patient. One of the things that I just, I really appreciated about that is that you encourage uh, courage for those first rank doctrines and then also point us toward drawing from wisdom for the second rank things. And so um, that, that was just really important for me reading this. And so what might that look like for us if we're dealing with uh, trying to differentiate these things? What does it look like for us to have courage with the first ranks and then having wisdom with the second ones? Well, on the 
courage side of things, I think there are so many times in life, especially for those of us who are not naturally drawn to conflict. I mean, some people mm-hmm. don't necessarily need as much encouragement about courage. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they're already, they're rearing to go. Right, you know? right. And, so, and that's, that's good. That, you know, it's good to have courage and boldness. But for those of us who, and I, this is probably how I'm wired, um, mm-hmm. inclined a little more towards wanting to maintain harmony. Yeah. Um, Likewise, yeah. It, it can be very challenging when we have a, a friend, for example, and maybe on a current social or cultural issue, or maybe on, on something else that really matters, um, they adopt a view that is really concerning to us, and it can be really tough to know, how do I talk to this person about this? And there can be pressure to just kind of, let's just kind of not rock the boat, let's not talk right. about it. And depending upon the relationship with the person, depending upon, or another situation could be in a membership class when someone says, you know, you guys as a church believe this. How closed-minded is that? Like, you believe Jesus is the only way, for example? Mm. That's bigoted and intolerant. And those are the kinds of contexts that I'm envisioning where we really will need courage. And I, I'm trying to emphasize in this book, you know, this book, this isn't a book about just being nice. This isn't a right. book about, and faithfulness to Christ isn't just a matter of being really warm toward everyone or something like that. There's a time to be like Martin Luther and take a stand upon the gospel and say, here I stand, I can do no other. And so sometimes that just means with gentleness, with love, and with a prayerful spirit, leaning into the awkwardness of some of those conversations and lovingly, gently explaining what we, and making an appeal Mm -hmm. for the truth um, and being willing to receive criticism and blowback if it's uh, for the sake of Christ. And then, and wis- but the wisdom is so important for knowing when to do that and how to do that. The second rank doctrines are a little different because it's a little bit less clearly kind of truth versus error. Right. And you're dealing with other brothers and sisters in Christ. And mm-hmm. so it's going to take a lot more nuance, perhaps, to walk mm-hmm. through what does godliness look like in this situation. Yeah. I, I think about uh, the example you gave of Luther, and, and he is kind of this fiery, here I stand. But yeah. then I think about his successor, uh, I think it's Melanchthon, who is a little bit more restrained and mm-hmm. and cautious. But I think you need that balance of both. And right. and even the, the analogy or the metaphor of the book, finding the right hill to die on, uh, there are... There are mountains on which we die, which I think are those first tier issues. And then yeah. there are foothills on which we converse. And right. the danger can be to to die on the foothills rather than have a conversation or to stay on the foothills and never get to the mountain. And right. so it's there's these two different ways we can err. Yeah. And I think it's it's almost kind of a tension for us as we seek to maintain truth to, to the scriptures that we're taught and what we believe, yet also having compassion and grace in the way that we engage with those who may see differently. And, and one of the, the quotes that I really liked from toward the end of your book, you say, many of us don't like to live with ambiguity. We like to have things nailed down. We want to know once and for all what number to assign each particular issue so that we can function in light of that judgment. And unfortunately, real life is more complicated than neat categories allow. And I feel like that is so true. And that is, uh, it's just a, it's a place to be where you have to be kind of okay with that tension of, sure, you know, engaging with truth and, and maintaining to the truth and scripture and holding fast to what's essential, yet having grace in the way that we interact with those who see differently than us. Right, exactly. Yeah. And, and what you're drawing attention to there at that point in the book 
was on my heart because I do think some of these second rank doctrines can change. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. sometimes people are always saying, well, what number do you put on this one? Right. And I'm very hesitant to just say, here's the number, case closed, no right. need to think about it anymore. Because it, uh, I talk a lot about how the attitudinal dimension of these things can be a factor. If someone is holding a, an issue and they're so feisty about it, it can become more divisive. But there's mm-hmm. ways of holding an issue and also details that relate to that issue that might make it more of a, a third rank doctrine, depending on how it plays out. So mm-hmm. it's, you know, that we're always wanting to make those practical judgments that pay attention to the details. Yeah. So a, a question I wanted to ask you specifically around the second and the, the third rank issues um, is that one of the tendencies I've seen and have felt in myself too is to take some of these issues and unite them to more first rank issues mm-hmm. so you can kind of elevate your pet doctrine. Um, yeah. And so an, an example I might <laughs> give of that is, is something like creation yeah. uh, and, and the debate around the age of the earth and, and how to interpret the first chapters of Genesis. And, and, and I would put myself in the old earth category along with you, but I, I certainly know people in the young earth category who would say that, that the Bible is so unambiguously clear that to take a different stance than young earth creationism is to deny the authority of scripture. Therefore, this is actually a, a first rank issue. And so it's almost like they try to, to wed, wed it to something higher up so that it can become more of a, a bigger, wedge issue. Mm-hmm. And, and so I wonder if you've encountered that, what, how do we handle something like that? Would you say? Yeah, I have encountered that. And, uh, one of the worry, one of the terms that can be thrown out in this context can be the language of a slippery slope. You know, yeah. you hear people say, well, if you take, if you get to this point, it's a slippery slope and you'll be sliding down to this point. And mm-hmm. one of the, I mean, they're categorically, that's not necessarily always wrong. So there are such a thing as slippery slope. So sure, that's, yeah. that's good to be aware of that danger. But one of the dangers is, as you say, it can, the way I've often put this is slippery slope arguments are themselves kind of slippery. <laughs> because if you start making those arguments, you can just make anything important because everything's right. interconnected. And you can say, well, if you go, if you do this over here, then it does this over here. And so we have to be really clear about the logical reasons for why point A gets you to point B. In this case, this view of creation gets you to this view of scripture. And I've thought about that from the historical standpoint. That's been really helpful for me because there are so many Christians who I know uh have a, a very high view of scripture mm-hmm. and yet there are differences on how to interpret say Genesis one. And that I think is helpful for perspective and for context, because if we say, Oh, if you don't hold to say a young earth creationist view of Genesis one, then you don't hold to a high view of creation. Then by implication, we're saying that people like Charles Spurgeon and BB Warfield and St. Augustine and, so many other, even of the fundamentalists, right. not even just of the conservative evangelicals, right. would be unsafe as well. And mm-hmm. so I think that helps just caution us and help us see, okay, wait a second, people can actually disagree on this, even while respecting, with a very high view of scripture, respecting its authority. Yeah. And that's where history becomes so important, right? Because we can yeah. we can point to people who have held a particular view and, and have been champions. I think of B.B. Warfield, a, I mean, a champion for um, the, the inerrancy of scripture as yeah. it's been formulated in, in the last 200 years or so. Um, and yet 
there's a lot of indication he would be okay with something like a theistic evolution view. And so to just point and say, hey, it may feel that way now, but history tells us that that these things were not as important as they feel to us in this moment. Exactly right. Yeah, I've often used the metaphor of uh, traveling to a different culture for what it's like to study church history because it's the same kind of feeling of when you're living in a different culture, you just get a different way of looking at things. Mm -hmm. And you might come to change your mind on a few things and you realize, oh my goodness, you know, not everyone thinks like an American. (laughs) Who knew? (laughs) It's just amazing. But we tend to just assume, well, of course everyone thinks just like I do. And then you go and you live somewhere else in the world and you realize, oh my goodness, um, I was assuming some things. Yeah. But what felt normal to me, I was assuming feels normal to everyone. And I think church history can have a similar kind of humbling effect on our thinking. Yeah. So as we sort of wrap this up, I want to do um, bring up another quote that I really liked from the book. Um, And and it's, even when the air we oppose is a deadly heresy, our aim must be to heal, not to disgrace. And that just paints such a great picture for what it looks like for us to embody this, to, to practice this. So if we really caught this vision, what difference do you think that this could make for our churches going forward? What I would so hope for and pray for and, and, and think we could step more towards is um, when we think of John 17, where Jesus is praying and he prays that we would be one, all that who believe in him would be one so that the world would know that the father has sent him. That seems to indicate that our unity is very important for our mission and that in some way, when people are looking on the church, they're, they're going to notice this unity that is going to be a powerful testimony for the truth of the gospel. And maybe it's the way we love each other. Think of, you know, John 13, when he said, by this, everyone will know you're my disciples, by the way you love each other. The hope would be that in this time of polarization in our culture, um, the church would increasingly model a better way of doing disagreement in which it is manifest to those around us that we love each other in the midst of the disagreement. And that we're having the conversation in a spirit of love, not in a spirit of rivalry, not in a spirit of suspicion, not in a spirit of cynicism or contempt for the other side. This is so often the, the way disagreement happens where we sort of demonize and we assume the worst and we draw a line in the sand and we put the bad people over there. Hmm. But in a spirit of love and a spirit of humility and um, without sacrificing conviction, and without necessary, without uh, reducing doctrinal boundaries that are important, but nonetheless, for those who are within the first rank category, they are within the body of Christ. Conducting conversations in such a way as we 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 feel in our hearts, I will be with this person in eternity. Um, this person is among those people for whom Jesus shed His blood. That's how precious they are in the sight of God. Mm. And that should restrain our attitude toward that person and the way we communicate with them. It won't mean that we don't disagree. There may even be time for rebuke, but nonetheless, there should be a a treatment of this person in the light of how God has treated them in Christ. And that will mean the ultimate category is uh, sensitive to love and unity. And um, hopefully we hopefully we will do that better, and in so doing, testify to the truth and the goodness of the gospel. 
Amen. Very Amen. well said. Yeah. Um, Gavin, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to talk with us about this and just help us to begin to think about this issue, what it looks like to, to guard the truth carefully, mm. to love one another well, and, and to bear witness to the truth of the gospel uh, in a diverse body of Christ. Yeah. Thank you, guys. So good to be with you. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of The Stone Table. If you have found this episode with our friend Gavin Ortland helpful and as encouraging as we did, I would encourage you to rate and subscribe. If there are any other topics that you would like to hear discussed on the show, you can feel free to reach out to us at thestonetable at baylife.org. For Baylife Church, I'm Mickey, and this is The Stone Table.